from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Five days prior to the murder, Kenny calls 911 and tells him he's going to do it. He's going to shoot them and then shoot himself. That's all I was asking in the beginning. How come Kenny was allowed to go clean this crime scene up and he was the only witness to this murder? The Homeland Security found out he had boarded a plane to Rome the day of the sentencing. So he left Missouri in December. By January, he's in a hospital and had both of his feet amputated. I'm Elaine Cha. Vicki Isaac is serving a life sentence for murdering her husband in 2013. But in the years since, a former police chief from Winfield, Missouri, has argued that the crime was far more complicated than a battered woman apparently turning a gun on her abuser. That dogged investigator, her name is Betty Frizzell, and she's in St. Louis tonight to discuss her recently published memoir at Left Bank Books. Betty sat down this morning with St. Louis on the Air producer Danny Wisentowski to talk about her search for the truth behind the murder and what's changed since the case was featured on season three of the Netflix docuseries I Am a Killer. Here's producer Danny Wisentowski. On May 14, 2013, a murder was committed inside a trailer in Puxico, Missouri. Puxico is a small town in the state's Bootheel region, about 150 miles south of St. Louis, with a population of around 800. But just within hours, police arrested Vicki Isaac, who had been living in the trailer with her husband, Chris. Chris had been shot multiple times. Today, Vicki is now serving a life sentence plus 25 years for that killing, which she has confessed to. But that day, that murder, changed many lives, including that of Betty Frizzell. Betty is an experienced investigator, a former police chief, and she is Vicky's sister. Last January, Betty joined our show to discuss her memoir, and later today, she'll appear at an event at Left Bank Books to talk about that book and the murder, and she joins us now in studio. Betty Frizzell, welcome. Thank you for having me. Betty, when you were on our show last year, you talked with our host, Sarah Fenske, about the murder that put your sister, Vicki, in prison. You talked about your family history of abuse, mental illness, and addiction, all of these forces that did factor into the events of that day in 2013. But on the day of that shooting, there was actually another person in that trailer. And that was a piece that we didn't really talk about when you were here last. That person who was there with Chris and Vicki that was Vicky's adult son, Kenny. And Kenny is an important figure in your memoir and in your argument that Vicky is not actually a murderer. So tell us a bit about Kenny. Uh, who is he and why was he in the trailer on the day of the murder? He's my adult nephew. He's Vicky's biological son and the alleged victim's um, stepson. And he was in there. He, was, he had been living with them, which I found was very odd because they had never had a very mother-son relationship. My mother had raised him, and um, he had been, he'd left his job of six years. He just walked off, and we didn't understand that either because he loved that job, and then he became homeless, and then he, Vicki eventually asked him to come stay with her, and he did. 
And this was just a couple months before the murder, wasn't it? Yes. It was in October. The murder happened in um, May. And, and that day in May, you, you call the trailer because you hadn't heard from your sister that day yet. And Kenny picks up the phone. Um, wh- what does he tell you? He is the first person to kind of tell you the terrible news. Yes. He told me that my sister was in jail. And I thought, well, why is she in jail? I thought maybe there was a domestic. And then she, with Missouri's 12-hour, um, if the police come out in the 20-hour period, or that maybe that they that was why she was arrested. And he said she was arrested for murder, which I couldn't believe. I and I found it very odd because I haven't been in law enforcement my whole life and nobody had called me, nobody from law enforcement. And they knew me very well because I had made so many reports of, of abuse from Kenny and the alleged victim on my sister. And there was actually an open Missouri Division of Aging case on, against both of them uh, at the time. So I didn't understand why we couldn't, uh, why, why I wasn't contacted. And as you mentioned, you know, this, this relationship that Vicki had with her husband, Chris, this was something that you had seen for a long time as, as one that was very abusive and that one that seemed to be building toward a crisis. Did, did you expect this, though? No, I didn't. Um, if I did expect it, it would have been on the other reversed uh, victim. My sister would have been the victim because uh, both of them were uh, had such a um, contentious relationship for many years. And then the advent of opioids had come in, and uh, they were both doctor shopping at the time. And then now you have another third person who had a, a mental health condition, which was not disclosed to the family due to HIPAA. Now, one one of the the features of this case that you describe both in your book, but one that is also um, kind of unavoidable, is that Vicky immediately confesses to this murder, both in the nine one one call, um, and you know to, when the police investigate her, her. Clothes and skin are speckled with the blood um, from this shooting. There is all this physical evidence. But Kenny is in that trailer. What what have you learned about was Kenny looked at as a suspect? What happened to him in terms of the police involvement from that day? Well, I think it was an open and shut case. And like I said in the Netflix special, that uh, tunnel vision is detriment to any um, investigator. So... Um, Vicky was uh, was looked at because she confessed. She called 911 and, and confessed, and she was covered with blood splatter. But this is another situation. He was lying on a couch, the alleged victim was, and the shooter was from behind, shot him 10 times. That's what the coroner and the death certificate says. However, my nephew is six foot six and a half. He's almost six seven, or he was before he had his amputations in Germany, I mean, in Italy. And... Um, my sister's only five foot five and a half. She says she's five seven. She's not. <laughs> she's five foot five. She's very short because I'm five nine and she comes up to my shoulder. Um, and so if someone is reaching for a gun or if they're fighting with another, uh, someone who's six foot six and a half, almost six seven, um, you're going to get blood splatter up in your nose. That was very telling to me that there was blood splatter in her nose like she was looking up. Wow. So, and you mentioned um, that Kenny has, has since undergone, you know, some pretty serious medical issues, yeah. in these, and these, and we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But you know, in this, in the context of this crime, he is just released by the police shortly afterward. He is the only person in that trailer who is not either dead or you know the one who was accused of being mm-hmm. murdered. At some point. He disappears. Right. What? What? Ha- how did that occur? And when did you kind of realize that that he had just vanished? Um, it was when Vicky got sentenced. She was sentenced in December of 2016, and at the time, um, 
I was, we were seeking conservatorship myself and my ex-husband. And in Missouri, you have to serve them personally. So he was hiding out in rural Missouri and, and, and we lived here in St. Louis and then we moved to Seattle. But he was hiding out in the, in the woods and not living in a home. He was homeless walking around our little town in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. So we couldn't serve him, but we had talked to him and my husband had convinced him to meet us at the hotel and then we would drive down for the sentencing hearing. He wasn't there. He didn't show up. And I immediately put a missing persons report out on him um, in Seattle, and they sent it to Poplar Bluff Police Department. And I was contacted um, several months later, it was three months later, I believe, in March, by the Poplar Bluff detective who had finally said, you know, do you know that he has a passport? And I was floored. I couldn't believe he even knew what a passport was. And I said, no, I did not. I said, call Homeland Security, because I had worked here in St. Louis with um, the FBI for a short time when I was a detective. And they contacted um, the, the Homeland Security and found out he had boarded a plane to Rome the day of the uh, sentencing. Now, just, just to take a pause, you know, Kenny is, is in his 30s at this point? Yes. And he, as you said, he had experienced homelessness. He is he has mental illness and, and situations that, that were making him unstable at this time, is right. that correct? And, and so you really had no the, – the fact that he had gotten a passport and might have internationally moved, that was just not on your radar? No. We had no idea that he even knew what a passport was because um, he is, his intellectually diminished is like his mother. And so we thought, what, what – but he, there were clues – uh, such as we didn't know when he did the deposition, he did it in an Irish accent. Um, hmm. We had found him one time. We had put him up in a hotel, my ex-husband and I, and um, we'd found out he was going under an Irish name at that time. Um, and so we contacted the State Department in Rome to see if they'd had any contact with him, and that we found out that he had actually been in a Rome hospital since January. So he left Missouri in December. By January, he's in a hospital and had both of his feet amputated. Wow. And this was 2017? Yes. And so, you know, part of this is you, you find out that Kenny has, has vanished. Yes. And you're concerned about him as a family member. But he is also a part of this, you know, picture that is coming together in your mind that your sister Vicky is not a murderer. And, you know, to be clear, kind of this is the case that you're making, that she is covering for Kenny in some way, that Kenny was the person who shot Chris Isaac you know, multiple times um, in 2013. And you begin this process of searching for Kenny. Where is he? Where is he in Europe? And I, I have to ask, you know, there is a part of you that is clearly a family member that is concerned about him, that knows about the struggles that he's done. But I wonder, is there an investigative part of your mind that is wondering, if I can find him, you know, could there be another confession? Could mm -hmm. this get your sister out of prison? During the search, is there a conflict between these two sides in you? Do you find a tension there? I do. I find I walk a very fine line. I took an oath to uphold justice as a police officer many years ago as a young young lady. And, and then as I took an oath to my mom to watch over both of them, which I sometimes feel like I haven't done a good job because of where she is and how he is. But there were things that I didn't know. Like with his mental health conditions, we weren't privy to that. You know, there, he was diagnosed in his early 20s and didn't tell anybody in the family because he thought he could control it himself, which happens a lot with people with mental health conditions. 
Now, you had also found, you know, in part of your, you know, the investigative side, as you said, that Kenny had called 911 just a few was it days before the murder, yeah. um, basically saying that he was feeling, you know, suicidal thoughts, ideation, and that he was considering, you know, killing Vicky and her husband. Um, this was, I guess, not something that factored into whether he was a suspect or not. Were there other warning signs that seemed like he was building to something? Yes. He had been arrested when he was living on his own. And my mom left him very financially sound. She had the house was paid off. He had a newer car and he didn't have to worry about anything. But he had shot at them before with that gun um, earlier on. And then I went back and I did a two year police inquiry of the police reports uh, prior to the the murder and the escalation of violence in his mental health condition was just deteriorating and nobody knew any of this because we were in St. Louis you know and they're 150 miles away on the Arkansas border and um, just the sheer and why he walked away from his job because he told them he was going to hurt someone the homicidal ideation was just running through him and he would get on his meds for a while and then he'd get off and that's one thing that wasn't really, um, for legality reasons, they couldn't address that in the Netflix special because they're a, the, the film company is from another country and they have different laws that dictate what they can and cannot say, where we have more privy here with the freedom, more freedom of speech than what they were allowed to talk about and how he got to Europe and why he was still in Europe. And, and during during Vicky's trial, uh, you know, this this a sense of an alternative suspect that was not something that was brought up. Kenny wasn't a factor in the defense. No, he actually testified an, in an Irish accent, um, but he, it didn't go to trial. It was a bench sentencing. So the judge sentenced it because she thought she was going to get 25 years. She got 25 years plus life. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that Kenny was, was testifying in an Irish accent. This was I guess a sign that he had these all these personalities that yes. were living in him that he expressed, and they had specific names. Yes. And this this was something you already were seeing. Yes, and our attorney had advised us, um, my conservatorship attorney, because when we were seeking a conservatorship, had advised us to start taping. Because in Missouri, you don't need the consent of the only one person needs to know they're being recorded. So we were we were taping these incidents and how he would change from one accent to another. And then I videotaped when. We found him in Germany when he was in, in the uh, – and how he got to Germany was uh, the State Department was kicking him out of Rome. Uh, he had been there over overextended time, and I had to get a plane ticket. And plane tickets are very expensive on the fly. It was uh, about $1,800, $2,000, I believe. So I had to fly him. The cheapest I could get was from Rome to Frankfurt to Portland to Seattle where I live. And um, he got off the plane in Frankfurt and eluded the guy that I had paid him and – took off and was in the homeless community. That's where I found him. And this this search for Kenny that you go on, you, you first try to bring him home from Rome. You then eventually fly to Germany yourself yes. to essentially conduct a search for a homeless man who is not, you know, can't really speak the languages, who may be experiencing, you know, serious psychosis. How do you even begin as, as a detective, as an investigator in a completely foreign country that is not really interested in helping you and doesn't speak your language? Yeah, that's true. I, uh, I had uh, three words that I knew. I knew how to say my missing American nephew, and I had a photo of him. And the Frankfurt police had warned me, you know, don't go down the homeless communities because you'll stand out because I'm, you know, this tall, redheaded American woman. <laughs> uh, so, but I did. I, you know, I've, hey, I've patrolled right outside of St. Louis. I've, I've, and having the family that I come from, I, there's not much that bothers me. So I, I went and uh, found him and the German police had lost him for six months. They couldn't find him. I found him in three days. 
to just going down in the homeless communities and um and, and finally we you know tried to bring him home then but he didn't have a passport you you describe in your book the moment where you finally see Kenny um and you had alluded to this earlier he had had just incredibly serious medical problems that had led to the amputation of both of his feet and part of his lower limbs and he was in his own world what what was that meeting like that when you saw him in that chair for the first time in, in years? It was better than solving any crime I'd ever solved. Um, and um, just, it was heartbreaking too to see him in that condition because he was always very buttoned up, clean, never had a beard. He was so scruffy and dirty and his tattoos were sun um, faded and he was in a wheelchair and we didn't know if he could even walk at that time. So, it was it was heartbreaking, but it was also relieving to see. But I know as a, as a law enforcement officer what happens to homeless people when they're on the street, for an ex- especially someone in psychosis that doesn't really know where they're at or who they're talking to. You know, as I mentioned, you had, you had tried to bring him home various ways, um, and, and sometimes he just refused to get on a plane or there mm-hmm. were other issues. But he is now... He, he, on his way back where he's he's in the states what is his status i have uh, got him in seattle he um i was out on an investigation in the middle of nowhere in seattle and uh and th- they said well the german police said we finally got him on a plane he'll be there at 155 i was one uh, at one o'clock i got that email so i don't know how i drove back to seattle i think my car grew wings and i uh we, we, he was in customs at the time, and then um, we've put him in a mental health facility. He actually has checked himself in, and, and he's been very cooperative since he's been medicated. When he's medicated, he's the nicest person ever. And I know he's done this. This is, this is a, the situation. The real person, his body might have done the actions if, if Vicky didn't do it. His body would have done the actions. But whoever really committed this crime will never go to jail because it's hidden deep in the ether of his mind. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more of this conversation between Betty Frizzell and our producer, Danny Wisentowski. Betty is a former Missouri police chief, author, and advocate for the innocence of her sister, who is serving a life sentence for murder. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Let's return to our conversation between producer Danny Wisentowski and Betty Frizzell. Betty is an author and former police chief speaking tonight at Left Bank Books about her memoir, The Killing That Put Her Sister in Prison, and why Betty believes she is innocent. The 2013 shooting of Chris Isaac in Puxico, Missouri, left two families grieving and forever changed, and a woman, Vicki Isaac, serving a life sentence for murder. But in August, the Netflix documentary series I Am a Killer released its trailer for its third season, and the first face on the screen, the first killer, was Vicki Isaac. This is what I remember. I was laying down, but I was awake. And I went to the kitchen. I was going to get grab a pack of cigarettes. And uh, I didn't grab the cigarettes, I grabbed the pistol. 
something told me to end him. Chris was sleeping. He was asleep on the couch the time I shot him. That was Vicki Isaac, as featured in the trailer for season three of the Netflix series I Am a Killer. Also featured prominently in that episode is Vicki's younger sister, Betty Frizzell, who maintains that Vicki is innocent. Betty, this Netflix series brought the story of this murder to thousands, perhaps millions of viewers. What was this experience like for you? Uh, it was very interesting because I've had a lot of law enforcement from all over the world say, what can we do to help? I've had detectives from Iceland all the way to Australia. I've had um, uh, some detectives in, in Africa. A lot of people have said, what can we do to help her? Because, I mean, it is a 45-minute edited show. You don't just see the whole thing. And Kenny's really not d- delved into as much. And um, a lot of people were angry at Kenny for leaving and going to, because that's all they say is they go to Europe, but they don't tell the whole story that this is a very sick individual. Uh, there's there's other mitigating factors. Right. And, you know, they, they mentioned, you know, that Kenny has denied, um, you know, they, they kind of make it sound like, you know, he's just you know, someone who said, you know, I'm innocent and I've always said I'm innocent. Uh, but they also mentioned that they were unable to reach him. Um, and it's because he'd been living, you know, not just in Europe, but as a, you know, on the streets of Germany and Rome. You know, but that that episode of, of the show, it includes interviews with the family of Chris Isaac. Mm-hmm. And they are still clearly grieving, and they understandably have their own opinion about this murder and kind of your argument that their loved one was actually murdered not by Vicky, but by Kenny. And on camera, they essentially say, you know, Vicky confessed. Betty needs to stop this. Mm-hmm. What, what do you say to that? I say that they don't have any law enforcement training, for one thing. For another thing, sometimes grief clouds us. If my sister was guilty of this, I would be the first one to say, okay, you know, you did the crime, pay the time. Um, but there were mitigating circumstances. Five days prior to the murder, Kenny calls 911 and tells him he's going to do it. He's going to shoot them and then shoot himself. Three of those days, he's in a 96-hour hold. The fourth day, he gets out late in the day. And then 24 hours later, someone's murdered. You know, that that segment, it doesn't, that episode, rather, of Netflix it includes interviews with the former prosecutor, I think, who prosecuted that yes. case and an investigator. They go they go back into the evidence room. You see him, you know, uh, looking through these boxes. You see some of the photos of, of Vicky's hands covered in blood from that day. And they, these two investigators, this prosecutor, um, they are not convinced by your argument, to put it uh, lightly. I think the prosecutor's quoted saying that he's he doesn't have time to read your book. And if he, he does did, now, well, he's yeah. been fired. Oh, well, we'll, we'll yeah. perhaps he will get to it uh, with, with <laughs> that free time. One. But they, they really do kind of focus on the sense that when you have someone who confesses like this so mm-hmm. quickly, when all of the physical evidence is only on that person who confessed, Kenny you know, didn't have these specks of blood on him. You know, I, I think from your police chief side of your brain, do you see where they're coming from and why maybe they're they're not interested in exploring this other theory? I see that they look, and from my, my police training, I see that they look at it as a clear-cut case. But, you know, what slam dunks aren't, aren't always slam dunks. You've got to – I've worked clear, hum, uh, clear suicides, which we've held the crime scene for at least two or three days to process to make sure that this is a suicide did we really make sure when you let Kenny go back and clean the crime scene up hours later? Because the murder occurred allegedly at 8 o'clock in the morning. By one, by the time I called, Kenny had already been home for hours. 
and the alleged victim's family had been in there taking things out. So there's a thing in criminology called the low card principle. You can't go into a crime scene without depositing something. You can't take leave without taking something. So contaminated crime scene is what it should have been. They should have they they had a search warrant. Why didn't they just hold the crime scene for a couple days? This is a homicide. This is a definite homicide, not a suicide. I've held suicides for two or three days. Why was this not held longer? That's all I was asking in the beginning. How come Kenny was allowed to go clean this crime scene up and he was the only witness to this murder? We're talking with Betty Frizzell, a former police chief from Winfield, Missouri, and who now lives in Washington State. Her memoir, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, was published last year, and she will be discussing that book and her investigation at an event tonight at Left Bank Books. Betty, we were just talking about Kenny and and some of the, the the issues with his involvement in this murder. We also mentioned that he is now back in the United States, medicated for some of the serious mental illness that he has. Have you had a chance to ask him, did he commit this murder? Well, I'm working with mental health professionals, I, and he's not even wanting to speak to his mom. So he's in a, uh, we're in a very contentious state. We have to be very cautious how we approach him. Because for one thing, I don't want him going back out being homeless because we know what happens if he, if he does that. And I don't want him to dive d- deeper into the pit of despair that lives in his mind. So I have to be, I have to walk that very fine line of like, yeah, I know what you did, and but then I have to be also a compassionate human being and let the mental health professionals tell us how we proceed. One of the most stunning moments from the Netflix series is really toward the end of that episode. And it's when Vicki is interviewed for a second time on camera. The clip that we played just a bit earlier of Vicki, you know, confessing, that was the first interview that was done, but there was a second one, one which you are then present for and which explores the idea of an alternative suspect, Kenny, being the one who does the shooter. And in I this, wasn't present for that, though, I actually. You were not? No. So the camera make, really makes it appear. It keeps cutting back to your face. Yeah, so I wasn't were, there. That I was is, there for the first one when she did confess and when she said that she did it. And I actually walked out of that because I had talked to the producer at that time. And I said, listen, if she's going to confess, she'll confess to you. Maybe she'll tell the truth finally. And so I walked out for, I was out of the room for at least 30 minutes. And I guess in that time that you were gone, this really remarkable exchange occurs with Vicki. She is asked, did you pull the trigger? And she doesn't say yes. She says, I can't remember because of the medications. She says, Mm -hmm. I can't say because of the legal implications, essentially, of what might happen in court. She is ambiguous. And when, again, she's asked, you know, did Kenny do this? She says, you know, he was there. I was there. And the episode really ends on this surprisingly ambiguous note for a show that is called I Am a Killer. And when the person featured in the episode is in the trailer for the show, she's suddenly saying, maybe I'm not a killer. What did you take from that that interview? Well, before they even interviewed her, this is another thing they didn't know. I, she'd already gotten a copy of my book. She'd read it. And he asked her, he said, Would, you've read your sister's book. What do you think? And she said, it's 100% the truth. <laughs> so I think that's the closest we've gotten to that. My sister, you have to understand, she is an abused child. She was abused, and she's always been the literal whipping boy for our family. So her idea of the world is very different than most people. She'll, she likes... She likes to be the protector. She was my protector, and she's given me the gift of the life that I have now. And, and But um, I, I took that as, we're never going to get her to, con- to change her story. And that's just, she's her own worst enemy in that aspect. 
in in the Netflix show, you you kind of really, I think, kind of encapsulate the theory that you have is that what Vicky is doing is atoning in some way for yes. her failures as a mother. Um, you know, she was, you know, she's Kenny's mother, but she didn't raise Kenny. And then, of course, you know, their their you know their family was destroyed in this this terrible murder. Have you had a chance to ask her about you know that that she doesn't have to do this that she she could tell the truth that Kenny could get help even if he is the one who committed this crime? She um, I have uh, that was the first thing I did when I got to see her face to face in the in the prison because everything's recorded so I wanted to make sure for legality reasons what and um, she she says she's made her bed she'll lie in it. That must have been such a sad thing for you to hear as, as her sister and as, as an investigator who, who wants to see justice done. I do. I would, and I, it's not just for our family, but for the Isaacs. They deserve that. They deserve to know what really happened to their loved one. You know, even um, though they, they don't like that I'm speaking out, I'm doing this for them as well. You know, it's not just our family. Betty, you are appearing tonight at Left Bank Books uh, to discuss your memoir. It's titled, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More, A Family's Legacy of Poverty, Crime, and Mental Illness in Rural America. Now, that title comes from something that Vicki told you when you first visited her in prison. What was that visit like, and, and why did you choose that response for your book? I, um, because that's what she told me, because I couldn't stop crying. We never cry. Our mom conditioned us not to cry. And because uh, we're tough Missouri girls, so um, I couldn't stop crying when I seen her. She was so vulnerable, and something in me just said, you, you, "She doesn't need to be here. She shouldn't be here. This is wrong." And uh, that's what she told me. That was the first words she had spoke to me was, "If you can't quit crying, you can't come anymore because I can't do this without you." Betty, I guess in our last you know couple minutes here, what does the future of this case look like? Well, it's, it's pretty much at a standstill. You know, we're in Missouri. <laughs> Kevin Strickland, he gets, a, you know, that's an, a perfect example of someone who was innocent but still had to stay in jail or was, even the prosecutor wanted him out, but the governor and the attorney general at the time kept him in there. And he was, Kevin Strickland was recently released yes, after spending 40 years. years. He was, you know, found to be, you know, a murder that he did not commit. Yeah. And then you look at Patty Pruitt's case. Patty Pruitt wants the DNA to be tested and the prosecutor's fighting that. We have to think about that with the... But with my sister's case, it, we're kind of at a standstill, and, and I'm writing now about I'm going back to our mom and and uh, and the how to deal with the mental health issue with Kenny, because it's a journey that I'm starting, and writing is very cathartic for me, so I'm trying to get um, th th that together, and it helps me with my own mental health because when you have someone, two people who have mental health issues that have been undiagnosed and untreated for years, it affects everybody in the family and you have to take care of yourself and have self-care. As far as Vicki's case, we're at a standstill right now until uh, we can get some type of federal um, look, uh, have it looked at federally. Betty, lastly, just I think folks listening to this might wonder what what keeps you going. What what you know, mode, you know, to go to Germany to to undertake all of these investigations for a crime that is that is done and for something that you know, Vicky has confessed to and and you know you are you are fighting so many forces and in some ways your your own family I, I think it's my faith keeps me sane 
I have a great uh, family support of home, but I'm a truth seeker. That's what we want our, our police to do. We want them to find the truth, even if it isn't in our own best interest. Or We need to know the, the truth and closure for all the families involved. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.